And then another great thing that Brant had said to me, said, if you need help, call out to the big island. It is alive. It's a living being. It will hear you. And so I waited till the NBC cameras had kind of moved away. I didn't want them to think I just lost my mind, you know, and I go, hey, big island, help me here. I'm going to give everything I have, but I need something extra. I need your help. I am committed to giving everything I have, even if I completely blow up in these final eight miles, but I need your help. The next mile, I made up 40 seconds. The one after that, I made up about 50. And the mile after that, I made up a minute and 15 seconds on the guy who'd been leading the race for over six hours. Finally, at mile 23, I came up behind Thomas, I rested, and then I made the final pass in my Ironman career. And I went on and I did win that final title. Welcome to the Yogi Triathlete Podcast. We are Jess and BJ, and we're on a mission to create a better world. Each week for the last four plus years, we've launched what we believe to be meaningful conversations into the endurance sports world, interviews that dive under the surface on subjects that crack us open and reveal the connection of our humanity. Today, we are fired up to be sharing the mic with not only a triathlon legend, but someone who has been committed to the deep work of mental training for decades. Mark Allen is a six-time Ironman world champion and Olympic distance world champion. He holds the longest winning streak in the history of triathlon and was named the greatest endurance athlete of all time by ESPN. He is a member of the Ironman Hall of Fame, USAT Hall of Fame, ITU Hall of Fame, and if there was a mental training Hall of Fame, <laughs> most certainly he would be there too. We're so grateful to have this amazing champion and coach with us today. Mark Allen, welcome to the show. Hey, that, thank you for having me on. I, I didn't know that I could have been eligible for another Hall of Fame if they'd had it. That, that would yeah, have been awesome. well, we might start it here at Yogi Triathlete. We might start the Mental Training Hall of Fame, um, yeah. you know, from a distance for so many years. Uh I have, we have both watched you and followed you. I mean, back in the day when I would watch the Ironman coverage with my dad and he would point to the screen and say, you see that? Those are crazy people. And I'm as a child sitting on the couch going, uh-huh, like there's something about that that I really, really like. <laughs> and um, those were most definitely the days that you were out there racing and um and you're still very much in the industry still very much in everyone's field as a mentor whether you know that or not and of course uh closely with the athletes that you coach um so i mean i think that it's these times are so interesting 2020 and so we're kind of interested to see about what how you're spending your time finding joy these days in, in a year that is just interruption after interruption? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, a lot of the things that I and, and other people did prior to the pandemic to sort of experience joy are not even possibilities, right? Like some people would race for that experience of fulfillment and joy, that experience of themselves on a on a a better part of themselves you know i mean as you know racing is is challenging and any kind of challenge if we sort of rise up to it we usually there's usually something that we learn and that enriches our lives and that's taken away nobody's racing basically and um a lot of people are are not going to work people aren't socializing as they used to but in that there's been this simplicity that has 
sort of permeated everything, you know, and I, I think that, you know, as a, as a race, as human beings living in the modern world, we've kind of been on this, we've got to build more and more and more and, and reach a higher peak and peak and peak and another one and another one, and another one, and have things be more in affect us more intensely over and over and over. I mean, just, just look at like, let's say Instagram, you know, there's some incredible, like real, real photographers out there, not just like hacks like me who take my iPhone and kaboom, I've got this amazing photo and I tweak it with a little thing and it looked kind of cool, but real photographers. Right. And so, you, you know, I scroll through my feed and I follow a lot of the, the, the amazing sport photographers that, that I've met over the years. And, and, you know, they'll post something and it's like, you look at it for about three seconds and go, wow, that's amazing. And then you're on to the next photo that is like visual crack for your brain or something. And so anyway, I, I'm, let me bring it around. It just feels like this time is is forcing us to ask ourselves, what's truly fulfilling and what is satisfying in life once we take away a lot of those things that, that we're almost like a drug, you know? And so it's, it's really brought me down to a lot of basics. So like, you know, for example, in my, I don't race anymore anyway, but in my training, I've really embraced just that experience of just getting out there each and every day and doing something to move my body and to feel that vitality that flows into me when I, when I do walk or run or surf or do a core workout in my home or what, whatever it is, you know, and it's such a simple thing, you know, and then, you know, I also go outside and just spend time absorbing nature. You know, you go outside, there's always a sunrise, there's always a sunset, there's the fresh air, there's the earth beneath you. And all of that is so alive and, and to tune into that and to feel those to notice those subtle changes that go on every day, you know, like you look in your garden in, in the spring and there's no buds on anything. And then a little one starts to come out and then a few more. And the next thing you know, there's like these little colors inside that the, that were that's coming out and then there's flowers and, you know, isn't that how life really is? It changes on such a subtle level each and every day. And I, for me, that has been one of the great lessons of this time to reaffirm that things change slowly, um, a little bit at a time. But as they do that, it's these, it turns into these over time incredible transformations. And so I've been trying to embody that myself with, you know, just personal changes I want to make within myself, you know, to not have it be like, I've got to, I've got to have this mind blowing day where I wake up and go, aha, I'm the person I've always wanted to become, you know, it's not like that. It's like, I feel a little shift from yesterday and tomorrow, hopefully I'll feel another one. And, and uh, maybe it's just having a, a deeper sense of peace in the midst of stuff that is completely out of my control or, Maybe it's just feeling of service to somebody that needs help during this time that, you know, I wouldn't have had the opportunity to help had this pandemic not come along or, you know, so it's just noticing subtle things and dedicating myself to uh, tuning in, into that subtleness. You know, think of it this way. I'm rambling here, but think of no, it this it's way. All, it's, it's all good. It, it's, it's all delicious medicine. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, you use the word, right word delicious because I was going to talk about food. You know, in the modern world of food that never existed when our ancient ancestors were around, a lot of foods have that super high taste additive put into it to make it almost addictive, you know, like mm -hmm. ranch style Doritos or, you know, what, whatever you pick it, you name it, you know, even, even super healthy things that have natural flavorings. Well, they take these natural flavorings and concentrate them down so much that when you put this little morsel of whatever in your mouth, that addictive part of your brain goes, Wah! you know, and so you want more of that because it was so intense. And so you have more and that, and over time that dulls that subtle, knowledge that your tongue has to tell you what you really do need to eat and when you take away that that high intensity stuff like you just cut that out of your diet all of a sudden you're realizing that craving for that one big thing that was your addictive thing that you wanted every day it's like 20 different sensations my body needs a little more protein my body needs a little more water i need some good oils i need you know, whatever it is, I need something fresh. And as we tune into that subtle knowledge in our, in our tongue by taking away the high intensity stuff, all of a sudden your body goes into a real balanced state and you don't have to think so much about how to eat and your body transforms into a really healthy state. And so it, it feels like that's happening on many levels. You know, we're transforming into maybe a healthier state. We're noticing things as a society, you know, Black Lives Matter. We're noticing things that that have always been there that maybe we were too busy to notice before. And so I, you know, the people that I coach, I, I'm telling them, I'm offering up the idea to them to develop a different relationship with their movement. It's not about a race. It's not about getting ready to set a PR. It's about in this moment, on this day, doing something that is very positive for you. You're moving your body, you're reducing your stress, you're keeping everything balanced, you're getting a break from thinking about all the stuff going on. You know, I mean, as you know, pretty much every conversation starts out with, wow, well, how is it for you? You know, and But so, isn't that like, isn't that such a beautiful kind of, in, uh, it's this secretive way that the universe is allowing us to connect on this like more humane level. Like we, you know, you, we've heard this, like we're all in this together, but we're also, we're also talking about it. You know, we're also talking about it. I had a friend who messaged me on Instagram and she just said, you know, I just wanted to let you know, you don't always have to be so strong. And mm. I, I had an experience uh, recently where, you know, it's just one of those days kind of just had some heavy energy. And I was like, you know, I, I, don't, I don't feel like attuning to the opposite. I don't feel like doing this breathing technique. I don't feel like trying to get myself out of it. Like, I don't feel like being brave or strong right now. So I'm just going to be here with it. And I think that that's also a really potent technique to just, just, to realize that we are kind of, be, we're all being cracked open. We're getting to see what's been brewing under the surface that mm -hmm. maybe was quelled by the excitement of a swim start or an ultra marathon or, you know, um, being able to go out to eat. That we, we are being, we're, we're kind of being forced, you know, a lot of us, it might feel like force to go in more, to see what's, um, 
you know, true for us. We've had actually a couple athletes who are like, you know what? I don't even know if I miss racing. Like, I just want to do this cool adventure on my own. Mm -hmm. And like, what an amazing thing, because with racing, maybe there was a pressure to race. Yeah. You know, you brought up a real good point about having it, having it be okay to be in that space. That's not super positive and super, you know, cheery and happy. It's like, that's, we're lucky to get those moments and there's a lot of moments where life is challenging. And, you know, I have a, a spiritual teacher, Brant Secunda that I've studied with now for 30 years. He teaches shamanism uh, that comes from Mexico, the Huichol people in Mexico, central Mexico. And he, he said, you know, nothing is inherently good or bad. It's just our reaction to it. It's how we relate to it. And this has really been a, a time to, reflect on that simple concept. You know, this is people, people have died forever. People have gotten sick, you know, and it's, it's sad when somebody passes on, not to say that it's a joyful thing, especially when it's from something like this, you know, somebody dies, they're 105 and they lived a long life and they pass away in their sleep. That's wonderful. You know, somebody's suffering through this pandemic and they die. It's a very different story, but I've had those days too, where it's like, I don't have the energy to pull myself up out of this feeling of this is just tough, mm-hmm. you know? And it's like, okay, that's just, that's, that has to be all right to have that once in a while. And, you know, I can sort of put it back in perspective of athletics. You know, I, not every race I had had a result that I was happy with. And there were, you know, people know a lot of my positive results, but there were a lot of races where I was, I thought I was ready to have a, a great performance. And I would, let's say, end up walking on the marathon in Hawaii at the Ironman and the world championship, the biggest race of the year. It's like walking on the marathon when you're trying to win is <laughs> disappointing, you know, especially when you, I felt like I was ready. And so I always allowed myself time to just be disappointed afterwards, you know, to not try and shove it away, to say, oh, I've got to turn this around today, the day after the race, but just to just be with it and be disappointed and frustrated or whatever. And then that would shift. And then a week or two weeks or month afterwards, then I had enough distance that I could look back and go, ah, okay. I actually learned a few things from that race, first and foremost, that are going to help me in the future, because I made it through some points where I could have easily just quit, thrown in the towel, given up, and I didn't. I made it to the finish line. That's going to serve me in the future. And secondly, with distance, I was able to actually look and go, hmm, I see where I wasn't prepared. I see the holes in my performance, and and some of it's training, some of it's I wasn't in the right internal space, and I need to work on that as well. And so anyway, this, this is a time like that too, where I just, if I'm just not having a good day, it's like, that's okay. You know, and two or three days later, it's like, or a month later, even, you know, it's like, oh, okay. You know, you're in that moment of quiet somewhere, whether it's out running on a trail or you're just sitting in your garden and you're not really thinking about much of anything and something goes, ah, I'm getting a, I'm getting a nugget of a new vision for how I want to approach a challenge or something in my life or a relationship or my work 
or my athletics. Let me craft that. Let me let it, let me grow it and see how I can put that into, into place in my life. I, I hope that makes sense. Um, yeah. You're, Go ahead. you're exercising, you've exercised that muscle of creating space between the experience and how, and how you perceive it and how you react to it and, and how it defines you as an athlete or coach or human being. Um, but it, has it always been that way or was there a time when you were attached to whether it was a, a high, you know, the highest of highs or the lowest of lows and you went down that path only to learn? Because now we're looking at you now, you know, years later and you've got that calm perspective, <laughs> which I think everybody craves, right? I, I'm, mm. It's what we see. <laughs> but I think that's what people crave. But there was you know, there's people now just like they're clenching their fists and they're like, why me? Why is this? Why does it happen? I was getting so fit and, and it's being taken away from me. Like, so there, was there a time for you and, and how did you navigate through that to exercise this muscle to get you to where you are today? Yeah, I was, I was not born this way. Let me, let me put it that way. <laughs> you know, I, when I was younger, I, I, I had a very hard time letting go of something frustrating and it became almost like a trigger, you know, like I, I was a swimmer growing up and I was dedicated to it. I swam competitively 12 years, but I never did anything outstanding. And part of it was that I just, I, I didn't have the right, I, I couldn't get past disappointing races. You know, they would just plague me. And then I'd go back and I'd work even harder, which was not what I needed to do. I was already working hard enough and then I'd get even more tired and have worse results. And, you know, it's a self-perpetuating negative mm. cycle. And, um, when I started competing in triathlons in 1982, I right away, I saw that I, I kind of had more of a, the genetic toolbox to be a, a good triathlete than I did to be a good swimmer, but also that there was such a, a mental or even spiritual element to the sport that I'd never experienced in swimming. And so I really tried to start to foster that as a strength somehow. And, and I didn't know how I was going to do it or what it would lead me to or anything. I just knew that, you know, if I had a bad race, I, I could, I could turn that around. If I was having a bad moment in a race, I could turn that around. It may not happen immediately, but, but I could. And so I just worked on it and it's like any skill, you know, you do it over and over and over and over again. And then you have a race where it's go things are going really, really crappy and you turn it around and you win and you do a PR or whatever it is. That doesn't mean that for the rest of life, nothing will go wrong again. I've got it. You know, <laughs> no, the next race is going to probably have just as much or something even more challenging. And so you have to refine the way to keep yourself steady every single time you hit a challenge, every time you hit a, ro a roadblock or a, an unexpected event. It's like you have to continually go, okay, how do I, how do I navigate this one? And of course, you know, it, entire nations are figuring out how to navigate this one. So it's almost like you don't get a reprieve, you know, at least in normal life, you can turn on the TV and get distracted with somebody else's situation or problems, but now we're all having the same problem. And so there's no, there's no escaping it 24 seven. And I think, I think that because everything is requiring a little more thought than normal, uh, to figure out how we're going to navigate stuff. Okay. 
simple thing. I got to go to the store. Okay. Do I have my mask? You know, how much earlier am I going to have to go because there's a line outside? Just simple stuff like that. It's very important to balance that out with something that allows us to let our mind be completely quiet, you know, to let our nervous system just go like this. And clearly a lot of that can happen in that meditative motion of exercise. It can happen in a very conscious way just by just sitting for a minute or five minutes and not doing anything. There's so much value in doing nothing. There's so much value in just being quiet. You're not asking a question. You don't need to have an answer to anything. It's just to be quiet. And you can feel your nervous system go. And then even a minute, you feel recharged. And it's like, okay, the whole world looks a little bit different now. There's more peace. You know, it's like inner peace than outer results, not the other way around, you know. Right. It's like and find 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 peace in here and you'll then look around and you'll see it everywhere, that kind of a concept. Yeah, actually, that's really interesting that you just said that because um, you've studied shamanism. And if you can give people kind of the crash course on what shamanism is, and also like we, we come from the study of yoga um, and the science, that, that science of the mind. And so ancient teachings, just like shamanism, um, and uh, very much about getting into that quiet so that we can be in touch with that higher intelligence, that can we can be awake for those moments in the garden where we, you know, mm-hmm. have the, oh, yeah. But also one thing, and I'd love to hear your ex, your kind of description of it, is how the world how nature and the world that we see is reflecting us from within. Hmm. Well, like in in the Weichel tradition, you know, they say that we are a reflection of everything around us. And for them, they live in a very natural setting. So they are a reflection of the mountainous region that they live in, the the rivers that run through it, the springs that give them their water, the their reflection of the light of the sun. And this is how they view themselves. That's how they view what's in their heart, you know. And they're continually trying to develop a, themselves through a deeper relationship with the spiritual world of nature. You know, we, a lot of Western society looks at human beings and maybe animals as alive and having a spirit. But for the Weechels, they look at everything and say it has a spirit, the rocks, the trees, everything. And so they, they're just always trying to tune into everything around them. You know, what, what are these trees saying today? What are the flowers saying? What, what message is in the wind? And, you know, it sounds, it might sound, like, yeah, 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 you know, from a Western perspective, but it's a, it's a very real reality of, you know, when you feel something from the earth, you know, you feel this love or you feel uh, this beauty coming from the ocean or, you know, you're, you're, you're sitting in front of the fire and it's almost, and it's like the fire is talking to you and telling you things. You know, these are these are realities. And so uh, shamanism is just a way to live life in balance 
with nature, with yourself, with your community, with your family, with your friends, doing, you know, spiritual endeavors that are just as important as, um, you know, our physical endeavors that we do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so they like the Weichel people will have they have ceremonies many times throughout the year to honor the change of seasons, you know, spring, summer, winter, fall. They it's 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 like a. It's a framework to develop your intuition, to develop a relationship with your dreams, to uh, develop more energy or life force within yourself by through this connection. And, and you know how that is. You know, you're you're sitting in your office and you're staring at this little thing called a computer screen and you're feeling kind of drained and you're sort of like stuck and things are feeling pretty flat and, and stale. And so you walk outside and literally, you know, in the instant you're outside your door, you just get this, oh, okay, you know? And so they will use nature to empower themselves. So people, let me give an example of something that probably a lot of people can relate to. You know, when you drive up into the mountains in the winter and you see those snow covered peaks and they're rugged and you just go, wow, look at that. Or you go to the ocean and there's a big swell and you go, oh my God, look at that. You know, in that wow moment, you've connected with that place, whether it's a mountain or a a river or the ocean or the trees. And in that wow moment, you forget that you have credit card debt and that you've got this deadline coming up and that you were tired. And all of a sudden you just, you feel really good. Human beings are hardwired to feel good in nature. We all know that, but to experience it and to use that daily as a way to recharge our souls and our spirit and our enthusiasm and our commitment to life, it can be life-changing. But it's yeah. like it's like, it's like uh, running. You know, you do one run, you'll feel good. You do a thousand runs, it can tr- completely transform your physical health, your mental outlook. You know, looking at a, watching a sunrise or sunset once, it's like, that's beautiful. Watch a thousand of them. It can change your life. Mm. And these are these are teachings that Brant emphasizes and, and that he's taught me and that I've studied with him, you know, like I said, for 30 years. And we actually uh, we wrote a book called Fit Soul, Fit Body, Nine Keys to a Healthier, Happier You. And in there we touch on a lot of these these concepts that I've been brushing over today. Yeah, we uh, we read that book back wh- in. It's been out for quite yeah, a while, right? Yeah. Yeah, mid two thousands. Yeah, mid two thousands. But uh, um, I I like how that tradition is studying nature and and positioning themselves as a mo- really modeling themselves as a reflection of nature, not the other way around. Mm-hmm. Um, that this planet, I mean, I believe this planet is a living organism, mm-hmm. and I know that you're a a big surfer. And so, um, and you've been surfing, were you surfing prior to your study of shamanism? Yes, I've been surfing 45 years now. Okay. You know, I I, I started when I was younger and, you know, I was never the hottest guy in the lineup, but it's something that I absolutely love to do. And so now at 62, it's it's kind of my go-to, you know, like if there's any surf, I'll, I'll do that first and then later in the day, I'll probably do something else, but that's, that's, it's, you know, it's time in nature. It's, it's my yoga because you're moving and stretching in every direction. Uh, it keeps you 
I guess the best way to say it would be even mentally pliable because every wave is different. And so there's no two waves that are the same. You're always learning. You're always moving slightly different than you did on that last wave. It's it's community. It's time with the people that you've met over the years who surf the same spot. And it's my it's my stress relief. You know, you're just out there in the ocean and a lot of times you're just looking out and you're daydreaming about something, you know, it's, it, it incorporates so much. That's really just great for me personally. What has the study of shamanism, like the study of, of nature, how did that add to your experience as a surfer? Cause you were surfing prior to, and I know it's a very, it's a very, it's a spiritual experience. That's, I don't surf, but we live in Carlsbad. Um, and so I spend a lot of time standing on the beach watching these men and women. And it's this, this amazing dance. It's so how did that, in, did that enhance your experience as a surfer and how? Just to have the awareness that the ocean really is a, a living mm being and to tune into her you know for the weechels they call her grandmother ocean mm. and so you know to tune into like her language you know each day you got to go out there and tune into her language on that day otherwise you don't catch waves if you think oh i'm gonna go out and it's gonna be the exact same thing and i'm you know every swell is different it has its own character every wave is slightly different and so you're just you're just tuning in and um, and, and I've gotten a lot of insights just sitting out there. Like I said, you kind of daydreaming a lot, you know, you're not really thinking about anything. And all of a sudden that, that thing that ha- did not have an answer before, it's like, you see it, it's sort of like right there. Oh yeah. You have to, it's like, you have to give yourself permission to go out in, in, in nature and be in it in, in whatever form feels right for you, whether it's hiking, walking, jogging, sitting, you know, in, even in a park, on your front lawn, whatever it is, with no guarantee that anything's going to come to you. <laughs> with, I was just going to say, a lot of the surf, I mean, there's been no surf here for two weeks, no surf, and they've just been sitting. They did a ceremony. They, they did, did like a ceremony, a ceremony praying for praying waves. Praying for waves and, to come. <laughs> yeah, down in Encinitas. <laughs> but I saw them today. They were just sitting out there, and then behind them, you just see pods of dolphins just just swimming by and, and it, it begs the question, cause I'm not a surfer either. Like what, what are they doing? On? Like what is, <laughs> what is their purpose out there? You know, but I think what you just shared beams a, a big light right on it as to it's more than just the waves and, you know, triathlons more than just the races. Like there's, there's something maybe not visible all the time that we can pull away from it. And if it's that one idea or one clarifying moment, like, wow, that's, that's truly inspiring. I think what you're both talking about and you haven't used the words yet is really this idea of like just doing the work, like doing the work for the sake of the work and not for what you're going to get out of it. Yeah. And I think that's what this time during the pandemic is, is teaching a lot of us is that it's just day to day doing, doing the basics, finding meaning in keeping your kitchen clean or, you know, <laughs> BJ, <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> no. Uh-oh. You know, I mean, whatever it is, some simple practice of life that has no big grandiose endpoint or uh, thing that you're going to be able to stick a label on. It might be something that only you are going to understand you did a little bit better today than you did yesterday as a practice of life. And so that's how 
that's how a lot of the athletes that I coach are now sort of approaching their training. You know, it's, it's a practice for life. They're just perfecting themselves, how they move They're They have more time to be aware of their body and, and where it's tight and how to move differently and more efficiently. And it's, they're getting these little aha moments because there's no focus on I've got to get faster and I've got to put in all these miles. No, I'm, I'm going to go out there and feel how I move. I've never done that before. You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Or like, I, I noticed that I had this, uh, and I'm sure other people have maybe would have the same tendency that I was still, um, I was lucky enough to actually have a, a, a race out in Utah at the end of May. Uh, it was an ultra marathon. It was small. Uh, they took, they, they've actually kept going and it was safe and it was just an amazing blessing. I th- think that I got to experience that. But when I came off, it was like I was still like ramping up for a race and I found myself out there and I had like some niggles going on in the body and I was out on the trail one day and I'm like, what are you doing? (laughs) Like there's no races and it's like you have a race on Saturday and you haven't trained for it. Like that's how you're acting right now. Like what, what are you doing? And I think I texted BJ and I'm like, I'm coming home and I'm taking a break. And so um, I've noticed that I've been doing like a lot of, like I've been mixing up the routine. I went into the open water today. I haven't done that in a while. I've been swimming in the pool and uh, I got a new bike and I've been playing on a road bike and just, I backed way off in that moment of like, you're acting like a crazy person. Like you're acting like an absolute crazy person right now. You're pushing, you're doing all this stuff. And there's not an Ironman on the calendar. You do not have a race. You don't have a marathon. You have nothing on the calendar. You're crazy. And I think really what it showed me is, yeah, I mean, I meditate every day. I do this, I do that, whatever, right? Like you're not immune to uh, these baked in loops that, you know, Mm. we're so good at. And as endurance athletes, we're good at that. We're good at going. We're good at going hard. We're good at pushing through. We're good at that stuff. And I think this backing off and taking a step back is such an incredible blessing. I know my body is really appreciating it, but I think we got to laugh at like how crazy we can we can be well, sometimes. We're on the, we're on I mean, at least I'm laughing at it. We're like, there's got to be something. Like we're that's we're conditioned. The brain wants it to be easy. It's okay, like, yeah, I get to go hammer again today and today, and then and if you don't have those moments where you're like, aha, well, what if I just dialed it back? you know, dial back intensity. Let's talk about intensity. Like dial back that, that what can be brutal on the body and let's focus on, um, you know, Z math pace. Like just, uh, let's dial back and, and see what it feels like to run and be in that experience, not caring about, you know, the intervals that need to happen or the intensity that needs to happen or where your paces should be. Um, because we're, you know, I'm a big believer in that, the MAF math method. And I know you were coached mm-hmm. with Bill and, um, you're on uh, Endurance Planet podcast. Um, my old coach used to be Lucho, uh, Tim, who's, who's mm-hmm. also the, the host there. And it was a big, profound um, realization for me, like to dial things back and to really see what it's like to, to hone in that. And, and it's not easy because everybody says it's an easy pace. It's, it's that pace that's comfortable that you can have a conversation with, that you can massage into what it, what it feels like for you to hold for a long time. And Um, and I'm actually doing it myself. I've actually just dialed myself back, you know, got back to the heart rate monitor. Mm. Um, How, 
how, first of all, how important is the, the math method in, in your training and in, in your successes, but also what are the biggest struggles people have mm-hmm. <laughs> adopting it for the long, that long period to stick, that stick to itness? Well, that, you know, the math method is probably most people have heard of it. It's, it's a way of building your aerobic system first and then sort of fine tuning that with speed work. So the, the bulk of all, most of the training is aerobic. Aerobic is basically fat burning. It's, it's low stress on your body. It's kind of how we're hardwired as human beings to function best. You know, we have enough, even the, the leanest people pretty much have enough fat in their body. If you could use all of it up for energy, you could go about 500 miles. But we only have enough carbohydrate in our bodies to go about 20 miles. So clearly, you know, our storage tank is made for us to go to do stuff at steady paces, you know, whether it's walking or jogging. And then, of course, because we do have that carbohydrate in there, which is the high octane fuel that we need when we're going really fast. We have some of it because in ancient times we did need it. Right. But we're basically hardwired to go uh, slow and steady. We're the best endurance plant animals on the planet, in fact, you know, even better than horses. Like if you look at the the record for the Western States 100 for humans and Western State 100s for horses, it's the, the human record is a little bit faster. But anyway, <laughs> aerobic training is low stress on the body. It's something that you can basically do day after day after day. That high intensity training is requires more recovery. It's high stress on the body. It shuts off that fat burning engine, you know, because, um, you know, it came from survival, right? So like, you know, if a saber tooth tiger is chasing you, like you look like a delicious morsel for lunch, you don't want that diesel fuel fat burning like, hey brother, how you doing? No, you know, you want to get out of there. And so your body goes into high stress mode turns off the fat burning engine, turns on that high octane carbohydrate burning so you can run fast and get out of the way of danger. That's survival. We all have that. That's how we're hardwired. So when you go and you do a track workout or a real hard interval workout, fat, super fast paced workout, your ancient genetics are reading that as there's danger around, you know, on alert. And so we're, we don't, we're not hardwired to be able to sustain that over and over and over and over day after day after day after day. I mean, look at what stress does to people, stress, high stress day after day, you have a heart attack, boom, you're dead. You know, even if you're an athlete that can happen. So it was really important in my days as an athlete to do exactly what you're talking about, just to slow it down, to implement that fat burning aerobic training over and over and over. And eventually you do actually get very efficient at it. And, and over time, you can actually go at pretty fast paces aerobically. Like at my peak, I was able to run about a five and a half minute mile and still be aerobic. So that's, that's moving along, you know. The challenge, and you asked me this, you know, the challenge is that uh, if people have been training anaerobically a lot, their aerobic system is little and so when they start out, they're going to have to go really slowly to keep their heart rate from just skyrocketing. Most athletes, they'll stick with it for a week or two weeks, and then they go, ah, oh, screw that. I'm not going to, you know, I'm, I need to do my fast stuff. 
And so then they, they just throw it away and they don't ever get the real benefit of it. It, it takes it takes months and you'll keep you'll keep benefiting from that. A lot of aerobic, a little bit of anaerobic switching back and forth during periods throughout the year. You'll get faster for years if you follow that. Um, when you do high intensity stuff, you'll get really quick right away. You'll get quick quicker. You'll get fitter right away. But the top of the peak is much lower than if you had built that aerobic base. And once you hit that peak, then you slide off the other end and you get injured, you get burned out, you get sick, you get unmotivated, your energy levels are low, you get, you get irritable, you know, and then your fit, your fitness, you think your fitness is dropping. So you go even harder, which shoves you even further into an overtrained state. So it's, that's kind of the, the short version of that. But essentially most athletes don't have the patience to just slow it down for long enough. And part of it is that high intensity workouts is, is like everything else that we do that's sort of addictive, like high taste foods or scrolling through a million Instagram photos. You know, each one is like a little bit of photo crack, right? And, you know, instead of, and so high intensity work, when that's not there, a lot of athletes feel like I'm missing something, you know, I'm not getting enough out of this. You are, you know, it's, it's a whole paradigm shift to actually come back for, from a workout and feel better than you did when you started as opposed to trashed at the end. Mm. So that's a mindset. Shift. It's a real mindset shift to, to embrace that, um, especially with the social media. Like if you they look at all their training partners who are not doing math and they're crushing their, you know, <laughs> 20 by half mile repeats because some pro is doing it. Right. That's what I'm yeah. supposed to be doing. And they feel lack. They feel lack. They feel they. What what I see is they just don't feel like they're doing enough. Like it's always more and more and more. And even if you give them math, they want more. Like more and more and more. Um, luckily, with math, you can slowly you know integrate that more with the body being adaptable to it, safer than you can with increasing like four hundred or eight hundred intervals on the track. Mm-hmm. But how do you work with the the mind when someone says like it's it's or do you even see this? I'm sure they're coming to you because of your of your training philosophy but you know there's got to be some resistance at some point yeah some people slot it into it right away and they right away they can tell like oh okay this is what i've been missing others really resisted at first you know and so they're usually the ones that are like i can't go that slow you know i i hit that hill and it you know i know i'm supposed to stay under 142 but my heart rate goes up to 168 on the hill every time i got i go well then pick a route that doesn't have that hill, you know, or. And so, <laughs> it's not that simple, Mark. It cannot be that simple. Uh, yeah. <laughs> walk up that hill. Oh. It's okay to walk. Oh, you're Whoa. telling me to walk? I know. Whoa. And so, you know, and, and so then, you know, I have to keep re- retelling the, st- the story of how this is working and how it worked for me and that, <clears throat> you know, when I, when I lived, when I was racing, I would spend winters in, in Cardiff, right near you guys, mm-hmm. San Diego, and then summers in Boulder, Colorado, where I lived in Cardiff was at the top of a hill. And so every January, when I would start back in my training, you know, I was out of shape, like everybody, I took actually quite a long off season to let my body really regenerate and recharge and rebuild. And so when I came back into training, I was out of shape. And so, you know, I'd, I'd go for my first few runs and I'd run down the hill to the ocean. And then, of course, going down the hill, it's easy to keep my heart rate low. And then along the flat near the water there, it was pretty easy to keep it low. But then when I would go back up the hill to my house in the beginning of the year, I had to walk 
and not just walk, but walk slowly to keep my heart rate from skyrocketing over my maximum aerobic heart rate. So here I am, the Ironman champion <laughs> spotted walking up his hill on a run. You know, So it, it takes a, a certain amount of humility to just suck it up and go, okay, this is a window into where my physiology is right now. I can't cheat it. I can't, I can't fake it. I'm out of shape. My body can't metabolize fat for fuel, but give it time. And then, you know, a few weeks later, a month later, you know, then you're slowly jogging up the hill. And then the pace on the flat is getting faster. And then by the end of the season, you know, I'm running at a fairly decent pace up that hill. But again, it, 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 it takes patience. But I, I had the trust in it because I saw that it worked. And I've seen it work over and over and over for athletes that I coach. And so when people are like, this isn't going to work, I just keep... Giving it to them the story and say, just just give it some time. You know, are you getting faster on the bike? Well, yeah, I am getting faster on the bike, but my run is still slow. It's like, give it time. It'll it'll come around. It'll come around. And then they actually start to get a little bit faster and then they're kind of jazzed about that. And then they go and do a race and they're like, oh my God, I felt so good in that race. Nobody's feeling good in the races this year because there's no races except for you. <laughs> yeah, you except, got lucky. Except for <laughs> yeah, except for me. Exactly, I did get lucky. Um, you know this patience thing. And, well, actually, the humility. Like, I love that. Right here, here you are, like travel on legend, and you're walking up a hill. You were a legend in the making at that point, and you're walking up the hill, and that that's that's humility. And I believe that humility requires a dose of surrender. Would you agree? Um, and surrender, like where does surrender play in to this, this game of, you know, Ironman racing, endurance sports? Cause we, we have a wide range audience. We have a lot of ultra runners that listen to this as well, but I think the common thread is we all love to go long. Um, and so the surrender piece, how does that play in or how did that play in for you? Surrender, I think, is absolutely key to ha to having a great race. You know, you you have your five or six or however many number of race scenarios that you've run through in your head of, of how things you want them to go, of how you might deal with situations that are less than ideal. Um, but then on race day, something might happen that's completely outside of anything that you thought about. And so if you try to fit that unforeseen challenge into your paradigm of five scenarios, you're not going to optimize it because none of those address what's going on. And so you have to just, if, if you can just surrender to how things are unfolding and come up with the solutions in that moment, in that challenge, then you might be able to turn it around and end up having one of the greatest races of your life. So uh, an example from my racing the last year that I did Ironman was in 1995. I was, I was 37 years old. Um, I was trying to win my sixth title in, in six starts. Um, cause once I started winning there, I was, I was on a roll and I was, had a good roll going. So anyway, <laughs> I wanted to end it on a high note. I knew that that would be my final Ironman in Hawaii. And so, um, but nobody had won as a 37 year old at that point. Nobody had won six Ironmans and six starts. Uh, so I had, I had two sort of intriguing impossibility things facing me before I even hit the start line. And I had actually, um, I'd, I'd struggled, struggled a lot that year in my training because I was 
trying to sort of follow the template of what I'd done in the earlier years of my career, but I was getting, my body was starting to get tired and I was getting older. And so I kept having to cut back to keep from overtraining. And uh, Brant really helped me out with just having the confidence and the trust to do that. And, uh, but anyway, to fast forward into the race, when I came off the bike, I was 13 and a half minutes behind the leader, a 24-year-old uh, German triathlete named Thomas Hellriegel. Nobody had closed a 13 and a half minute gap at that point to become the champion. And so third level of impossibility, you know, I couldn't just Google, how do you win as a 37 year old that your sixth Ironman and six starts and overcome the biggest deficit anybody has ever come overcome on the marathon? There was no answer. And so all of my pre-race scenarios were completely out the window. And so I had to first and foremost find some some reason to even take the first step on that marathon because it seemed completely impossible. 13 and a half minutes, I, I can't get my brain around that. That's 30 seconds a mile, every single mile of the marathon. I have to make up on Thomas Hellriegel to catch him at the finish line. I couldn't get my brain around that. That was too big. So finally, I, I at least came up with a scenario that was going to get me out of the transition area. And that was a commitment to make up an inch or a second every step of the marathon. Okay, that I can I can go for. And so that's what I did. I just started out and I was trying to surrender to this incredibly challenging scenario that I was finding myself in. And, uh, you know, when I got actually to the top of the first hill on the, on the marathon course, there's, you know, thousands of people cheering and every, I was just trying to suck up all the positive energy from the crowd, you know, because they knew who I was and they were going and I got to the top of the hill and there were three older women who were cheering and they're looking at me and they're going, go Mark, go Mark, go Mark. Ah, oh, he doesn't look so good. <laughs> and that thought sunk in and about a mile later, I felt so bad. I didn't know if I was even going to be able to finish the marathon. And then all of the crap that goes on and all the little conversations that don't help you out, you know, ah, hell regally so far ahead. He's, he's 13 years younger than me. I shouldn't have come back. Hey, there's my hotel. Just, you know, call it a day. Everybody will understand you won five of these. You don't need to go out there and embarrass yourself for the next 24 miles. And I had to just get myself to be quiet because there was no logical solution of what my next motivation to keep going was going to be. I couldn't come up with a, a real reason. I took a few breaths. I got my mind to be quiet. And then something Brant had said to me before the race, before I left for the big Island, he said, you know, that he said the we told people say it's never over until it's over. Just trust in life. Take that next step. No matter how impossible something might look, just keep going because in the next moment it can turn around for you always give everything you have and and those words came back to me and i took another breath and that was like the final surrender it's like surrendering to the reality that my my dream was to win a, another title here to win a sixth title to tie dave scott's six iron man titles be a six-time iron man champ that's probably not going to happen. But there's a reason for me to keep going. I got into this sport in 1982 to be an Ironman finisher. I knew this was my final Ironman. 
I said, no matter what, I am going to give everything I have, even if I have to walk every step of this marathon, and I'm going to get to that finish line somehow. And literally in the second, in the instant that I said, I'm going to get to that finish line, Greg Welsh in fourth place, 10 seconds up the road ahead of me, stopped. He stretched his back. He, I passed him making the first pass on the marathon. And all of a sudden, the whole world of opportunity began to open back up. And I moved from fifth into fourth and then into third. And then at about the half marathon point, I moved into second place. With eight miles to go, I was told I was four minutes behind Thomas Hellriegel. So let me do the math for you. I'm, I'm making up 30 seconds a mile, but I am still only on pace to catch him at the finish line. So in relative terms, I was just as far behind him as I was at the beginning of the marathon. You know, catching a guy who's 13 years younger than you at the finish line when you're sprinting for a world championship victory is not a good place to try and make that move. I needed something more. My mind went nuts again, you know, like, ah, hell regal, I can't even see him. He's so far up the road. You know, I don't, he's going to win this thing. My legs are killing me. You know, I was, I was whining. You know, here I am. I've won this race five times. And I'm whining because it's not going my way. You know, this happens to, this can happen to everyone. <sighs> I got my mind to be quiet. And then another great thing that Brant had said to me, he said, if you need help, call out to the big island. It is alive. It's a living being. It will hear you. And so I waited till the NBC cameras had kind of moved away. I didn't want them to think I just lost my mind, you know. And I go, hey, Big Island, help me here. I'm going to give everything I have, but I need something extra. I need your help. I am committed to giving everything I have, even if I completely blow up in these final eight miles. But I need your help. The next mile, I made up 40 seconds. The one after that, I made up about 50. And the mile after that, I made up a minute and 15 seconds on the guy who'd been leading the race for over six hours. Finally, at mile 23, I came up behind Thomas, I rested, and then I made the final pass of my Ironman career. And I went on and I did win that final title. You know, the titles were great, but what was even greater about that day were just the, the thousands of victories that I had over that lesser part of myself that could have easily just thrown in the towel or even quit and said, uh, I can't do it today. I could, it could, you know, it was the thousands of victories where I threw away my ideal scenarios of how the race was going to go. And as to bring it back to full circle, you were asking about the, the importance of surrender, where I just surrendered to the fact that this is something that I had never, ever thought was going to, I would never find myself in this kind of a position. What's the answer? What will give me purpose to keep going? I found that answer over and over and over and over and it turned out pretty cool actually so yeah uh <laughs> one of the um one of the mantras i've used in the past and it just came in spontaneously in one of those moments at the end of a race where you know all, the wheels are all over the place they're they're completely off and i just started i was yelling like it was just moving through me like i'm not the doer i'm not the doer and i was just imagining that universal energy like, I don't have to do this alone. And that's a message mm -hmm. that I, I, I 
share with the athletes that I work with, like whatever it is, paying the paying the mortgage, um, uh, you know, going for that promotion, going for the title, going for the win, going for your first open water swim, going for that first marathon, like you don't have, the world isn't on your shoulders. Like you don't have to do it alone. There's energy that is in a non-physical form that is very much on your side and very much in love with you and your life mm. and is there to support you. That's, mm. that story is amazing. I love that story. Mm. That's beautiful. That's great. Um, I spent like a couple hours the other day on markallencoaching.com and I was looking at the I recommend everybody go there. You have a blog post for all those Ironmans you did and videos. It's just, it's amazing. And the video from 1982 is almost comical because there's no helmets. Um, and, uh, you know, there's lots of cables on the bikes and <laughs> lots, lots, of fluorescent, yeah. lots of things going on there. <laughs> uh, so one final kind of lighter question is if you had a piece of equipment that they have now, back then, what would it be? <laughs> oh, it would be arrow bars for sure. Yeah. <laughs> the first arrow bars were like huge. They were like they were like the golden arches from McDonald's. They like went <laughs> way out to the side. <laughs> they they were, you know, but that was that was probably the the single biggest um time saver of anything that's been invented, you know, as far as for, for any of the three sports. You know, I mean, some of the materials that we have that we can that for swimming that have less drag in the water than your skin, that saves time. You know, some of the, the advances in, in shoe design, that's free time. You know, I haven't tried the super fast shoes of, of this most current rendition of stuff, but you know, shoes are faster now in general than they were when I was racing uh, just materials. But the biggest time saver was putting clip on or arrow bars on, onto your bike. And, and at first I thought I was going to crash because your steering is so different than with handlebars. But uh, once, you know, that that saved, I don't know, at least 15 minutes on the bike ride, if not more. Yeah. And now they're all, they got cushy pads and they got the DI2 at the end. Oh, yeah. (laughs) You'd be like a... (laughs) Like a glimpse of the future back then with those. Awesome. Do you have any uh, yeah. final? So a, a lot of what we talk about on the on the um, podcast is is a, maybe a tip on how. Like we talk about a lot of stuff of the mind training and and we always like to come back to the how. So and and sometimes it's hard to, hard to articulate, but in those moments when it's challenging, how can an athlete at least begin to start a practice of being able to quiet the mind as you talked about? How can they start to do that? It's actually very simple if you if you just try it. And, you know, it's something that you can practice in almost every single training session that you have, especially if it's one that's a little more challenging for you. There's, if you find yourself in a moment where those little voices are going off, you know, going, it's too long, it's too hot, I should have eaten more, I should have, you know, whatever it is, that's, that's the perfect moment to just go, okay, there's the quiet. And then it, it can be as simple as just taking one breath where it's a little deeper in, it's a little deeper out. And when you breathe it out, you just let your mind go, okay, there's the quiet. And then you can feel you can feel your shoulders relax a little bit. You can feel your breathing go, go deeper. You can feel things start to loosen up. You can feel yourself re-engaging in, in that, moment that's 
uncomfortable for you. And maybe your legs are are hurting and you don't want them to hurt. Well, they're going to hurt just as much, but they won't affect you. It won't hold you back the way it was when you had those negative thoughts associated with it. And so it sounds simple and it is, but the more you practice that in your training, it's, I, I, I sort of call it regrouping. You know, you're giving yourself a one second regroup. It's regrouping is not giving up. You know, those are two different worlds. You know, I give up. Okay. Now it doesn't hurt. Well, I stopped. So I didn't finish it, you know, or it's like, all right, now I'm quiet. Now I'm, now I can at least fully engage in this track workout, in this bike ride, in this swim in the open water where I was starting to freak out a little bit. And even if it's not your best workout, you're having the best you can get out of that workout. And that is so important to get the best you can out of each of those sessions. And it may not be that you're going fast. It might just be that you practice getting your mind to be quiet. It might be that you were able to work a little bit on your form and you, you hadn't been doing that for a while. Whatever it is, you, you turn the day into something positive. And so the more you do that, the more you can, first of all, you'll be more aware of when you're telling yourself the rotten mm -hmm. stuff. Secondly, it will be more of a go-to reflex that you just do. You just go, Okay. And in a race, when those moments come up, it takes you one or two seconds to, to come back and fully re-engage. It might take your competitor 10 minutes. And in those 10 minutes where they're whining to themselves about something that they don't like about what's going on, they're not 100% engaged in, in, in their performance. And finally, they shift back. But you had nine minutes and 55 seconds on them where you were al already back in it. And so it's I hope that explains it. Yeah, it, yeah, it absolutely does. Hundred percent comes back to the breath. Breath is happening now, the present moment. It, it shifts your attention away from thoughts to right now, and it's it's not complicated. That's the that's the great thing about it. It's at our ready. It's available to us really all the time. We just mm -hmm. choose not to use it all the time. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. I think that was a beautiful explanation, and and one of the messages that I I really hope people take away from this is that you know number one is the importance of flexing this skill of being able to quiet the mind. I mean, it it with our breath, right? We we take in, we receive, and we let go in every cycle of breath. It's we're receiving and we're letting go. We're receiving and we're letting go. And that, um, and also that the breath is, you know, is tied into the nervous system. It will, mm. it, we will feel that calming. But also, just because we flex that muscle doesn't mean that we're going to be immune from cranky voices in our heads or acting like a crazy person when there's no races on the calendar. That, but it helps us catch ourselves a little bit more. And um, and I think that that's, I think that's kind of a beautiful study of humanity that we can. We can be the master of self by just getting more attuned to watching how we're moving through the world. Mm. Um, so I'm grateful. I'm grateful to you and and what you are putting out into the world through your athletes, through your history in the sport, and uh, your continued involvement with it, and certainly your time today. Thank you so much, Mark. It's been such a pleasure. Thanks. Good luck with everything, and uh, we'll have to chat again soon sometime. Oh, we Absolutely. would love that. Yeah.